0: Hello, this is Jesse Weiler for Otteramus Bulletin. On this episode, I speak with Father Aaron Williams, who is a priest of the Diocese of Jackson, Mississippi, and a graduate of the Liturgical Institute. He recently wrote an article for Otteramus Bulletin titled Mission Impossible Antiphonale Romanum I. Now, I want to clarify some of the confusing parts of this because Antiphonale Romanum Two was actually released before Antiphonale Romanum I, and that was released in 2009, and then more recently, Antiphonale Romanum One. Now, these books provide the Gregorian notation for the Antiphons, Hymns, and Responsories, which are necessary for Lods, which is Antiphonale Romanum I, and Vespers, Antiphonale Romanum II. So, I just wanted to clarify that so it helps you understand the context of the conversation and the article. You really should check out the article at Autoramus.org. So, without further ado, another Autoramus interview. morning father how are you doing doing well thank you it is great to speak with you today about your recent article of course that's mission impossible antifinali romanum one and uh i think there's a lot of expectations for this this is going to be a great conversation because we get to nerd out a little and uh (laughs) this isn't your your mainstream you know liturgical stuff but it is incredibly important and i and conversations and things that you're talking about in this article are going to be foundational for liturgical renewal going forward. And, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm just curious the, as to the the reason you wanted to write about this in the first place, actually.
1: Yeah. So um, you know, I like the phrase nerd out because I, I, mean, I have a, a chant nerd. And mm-hmm. when I got my copy of the Antiphonale Romanum Volume 1 uh, in the mail, I had taken a picture of it and put it on. Instagram. And then Chris Carsons had uh, had emailed me and said, I don't know what this book is. Do you think you could write an article about it? Um, so I, I tried to think about in writing the article. Um, I, you know, I realized that those people probably have no idea what any of this is. And so um, I figured instead of just writing a review of the book, it would be better to sort of give a, a study of why this book is actually significant in the, in the larger context of the liturgical renewal that's come since council um so that's really the, the the thrust of it now i mean it's a passion of mine obviously to read the article i know a lot about this um but i also think it's good just to expose people and, and realize that though this may seem like a certain niche study um it really does have impacts um and it shows how the reform of the council is actually still not complete and still going on
0: so my, so we're talking about. Um you know, Antiphonale Romanum 1. And this is, uh, we didn't have music placed <clears> to <throat> some important text, right, for uh, for Liturgy of the Hours. Now, this is a typical thing in the church where we start with a base text and then it's like, quote, unquote, animated uh, with, with music and 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 all of that and chant tones. So, I mean, a lot of the antiphons that we have are, t- they were originally text and then, you know, they are, composed to music settings so this is kind of a normal process is that right
1: um maybe to some extent so in the in the larger tradition of chant right um there's a a corpus of chant which chant scholars would identify as as authentic chants and then there's sort of more modern compositions which people usually would call neo-gregorian chants or new new chants and um so there was a sort of at the same time the liturgical movement was happening in the early 20th century, there was a big musical push to um, to sort of return to these authentic melodies um, to give a very brief history, of, essentially for um, for the longest time, really, ever since Trent. Um, the bulk of manuscripts that were available in chant were published by Franciscan groups. And, um, and towards the beginning of the 20th century, it was becoming a a lot more simplified and even sometimes they would sing chant in a sort of metrical sense where it has a beat. Um, so when Pius X steps in and he wanted to sort of revitalize chant, he also entrusted a certain Benedictine monastery, the monastery of Salim in France with the, the duty of discovering and then publishing the authentic melodies, right? So Salem was working on this in the early 20th century, all the way up into the time of the council um, and publishing um sort of expert editions i guess you could say of the official chan books which would would have been the the gradual for mass and then the antiphonale for the office um and they had basically finished most of that work i talk about some of the work they hadn't finished in the article but most of it they had finished um well then the council comes in and um basically changes the rules of the game because now you have new new text um, a lot of new text for the mass and and especially for the office the office was was heavily um i think people don't realize just how much the office was changed in comparison to the mass really especially when it comes to to text it's
0: um, still changing oh, oh yeah hopefully, <laughs> hopefully soon <laughs>
1: yeah absolutely um and I've, I've thought about that in the process of all of this work um so so either way um the the first task Salem thought they should face was the mass since obviously the mass is the most important um so they started working on the gradual and and then later on moved on to the office and i talk about in the article how um the difficulty that came up with the reforms, the books themselves is that um a lot of these texts that are used antiphon text or or um hymn text um were were new as far as into the liturgical corpus. So, I mean, they're not new, obviously, because most of them are scriptural, but they're as far as um, you know, in, in our sort of tradition, liturgical tradition, they're they're new to that body, which means there is no authentic, quote unquote, authentic Gregorian melodies to go with them. So, Salim was faced with this issue. Here we have basically 150 years of work. They've been trying to reach authentic melodies, and now it's an impossible task because. Um, there, there, there is no authentic melody because they've never had music set to these texts before. Um, and they sort of just hit their head against the wall for this for about 10 years until eventually um, Salim and, and the Congregation of Divine Worship came together and sort of agreed that um, it is good to preserve the tradition of chant in the church in a way that can work with the new form. Um, and so permission was basically given for Salim to um, identify antiphons that, when the office is sung, um, or when the mass is sung, can replace text which don't have authentic Gregorian melodies to them. Essentially, um, and that's what these these books are doing: is um, whenever there is a, um, a a more ancient text, and they use the the original melody. But if it's a new text, they, uh, in the most part, they try to um, use a, a an antiphon that's similar in in theme or or purpose or place in scripture that has a melody attached to it. Um, the only exception to that would be in, and I mentioned this in the article as well. In um, in the early two thousands, when John Paul II reformed the breviary, he had added this three year cycle of antiphons at the gospel canticle, which we're about to receive in the English translation. We we don't have that right now, um, but when he did that, they they did decide that. Um, it was important these antiphons be used. So essentially um, new chants were composed for these antiphons. So you do have neo-Gregorian melodies for the gospel canticles and the office. Um, but the, the rest is sort of um unauthentic text.
0: It reminds me of um, my parish that I go to out here in, uh, in north of Chicago. It was, it's comprised of two decommissioned churches from Chicago. And for whatever reason, I, I don't know, uh, but they had, more spaces for stained glass window than they had windows that they were bringing over from the other churches. And so this mm-hmm. kind of makes me think of that. They didn't have an authentic stained mm-hmm. glass window to go in there. So they had to decide what was the image going to be and how could they create something that would look like it was a part of the series, which mm-hmm. it really wasn't. And so that kind of makes me think of this whole situation too, to to get into um, I know you don't talk about this in the article, but I'm just genuinely curious. Mm-hmm. So Mm -hmm. you talked about um, the metered music uh, Mm -hmm. being replaced with a more authentic uh, version of this. My question is, um, you know, we know the mass is a living and breathing thing. So there's changes, it moves and all of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there a concern with going to one extreme or the other, overly preserving these melodies so that maybe, you know, there's no new, there can never be any newness to this. But at Mm -hmm. the same time. If you if you make these adaptations to metered modern contemporary music, then it becomes vulnerable to adaptations which then are inauthentic. So, how would the church navigate those two things to make sure that there's room for growth and like what we're doing right now, creating these things that that we wouldn't be able to otherwise, having the authentic uh, originals, but also preserving it at the same time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's you know it's, it's obviously it's a huge question. Um, if you look at historically, you know, what was Pius X trying to do? I think Pius X was was seeing the musical tradition of the church was essentially being lost. It, it wasn't that um, the music that was being produced at the time, sort of these metered chant melodies. Um, they were simply, they were, they were basically simplifications of, the actual text, on the actual melodies. Um, and I think he was he was seen as this is a treasure and we don't want this to disappear, basically. So I think that's one of the things he was trying to do, is circle the wagons and make sure everything is maintained. Now, we're sort of on the other end of the spectrum now. We do have the resources to maintain this, but there is a desire in some places, parishes, um, to, to welcome in more modern compositions, right? And, and the, the council and music and sacrum is going to say that these things are, are definitely possible. Um, so I would say that I, I want to say that in, in music, soccer it, it talks about how the um, the the use of more contemporary music should, in some way, grow organically or, or reflect our tradition. Um, and I think that's the sort of the litmus test is when we're dealing with um, is this music suitable for the liturgy? We have to look at the the totality of the tradition and, and ask ourselves if it if it fits maybe not always stylistically, but, if, but if it, is it growing from that? Is it conveying the same message essentially, um, in a way that's not just over secularizing or simplifying things. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe like if you look at the music, um, for the mass, right. So, um, right after the council, one of the earliest things that was published was that gradually simplex, um, which mm-hmm. most parishes don't use. Um, but you know, when it was published, it was meant to be, a an approachable thing because it, it simplifies otherwise very complicated melodies. Um, and uh, like I said, like most parishes don't use it, but I think that they were trying to go to that idea is, can we present something of our tradition in a way that's a little more approachable to the day? Um, now, I think when it comes to, so you look at Salem, for instance, right, the monastery that's responsible for all of this. Obviously, a place like Salem is going to want to preserve the extroborian tradition because it's their charism. And I, I think that's um, one thing that maybe those of us who are not monastic sort of overlook is um, w- when a monk goes to chant the office, it isn't a matter of let's plan the music out for this day. Um, it, it needs to in some way be given so that in their life, they're they're not even thinking about that, right? It becomes part of their, their life um so obviously when solemn is putting this together that's sort of mentality they have now that's not happening in in parishes so to say maybe in like grand cathedrals where the office is chanted um but it's it's a good starting point essentially um
0: i want to talk a little bit about mm -hmm. not necessarily you know progressive solemnity of music but the Mm -hmm. hierarchy of music because you know we're talking about the office and it's intended to be sung i think most of us know and understand Mm -hmm. that But a lot of times it's not if people are doing it, they're just reciting it, you know. So there's legitimate variety within that confines. And so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it is important to set that standard and and let that be maybe, I don't know, be so bold as to say the goal (laughs) or to orient towards that direction Mm -hmm. so that anything that is derived or is a derivative of that is still in, like you said, in the mind of the church is it is that fair to say
1: yeah I, I would absolutely agree with that um, we, we need to know what the um, I don't know if I, if I would use the goal so to, to say that but what the what the church's mind is what is what is her culture what is she sort of expressing so that we can have um, a waypoint that we're retorted directed to that keeps us on the, the right road. Um, so that we don't sort of stray off in these other areas. That's, that's easy to do. Um, so I don't think, you know, the church would probably say that they imagine every parish is going to pick up the Antiphonale Romanum and chant it, you know, tomorrow. I don't think that's really what's going to happen, but I, but by having that book, we do have a sort of, um, waypoint. So let me give an example. Um, so the, the cathedral in Sydney, Australia, St. Mary's in Sydney, um, which I actually think uh, there's some liturgical institute, former students that are involved there. Um, they started in COVID chanting the office um, daily. They stream it on YouTube, um, which is great for us in America, because by the time you wake up, you already have vesters posted. For <laughs> tonight. Um, but what they do is uh, on Sundays, they're chanting in Latin according to the Tiffanella Romanum. And then on weekdays, probably because most of these books are not available yet, they um, they have produced very um, beautiful, but very simplified forms in English um, that have a sort of a chant basis to it. Um, and, and they're, they're brief, they're, they're set with an organ, and I think they're designed for congregational singing. Um, but I think it's a good example of, they, they know what the, the mind of the church is, and so they've been able to produce something that meets the needs of the people, that people are able to participate in, um, and, and authentically be part of this sort of tradition of the church without giving them something that they probably couldn't otherwise be a
0: part of. Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. type of permissions would you need to do that? That's something I always, Mm -hmm. I'm always afraid of. Oh gosh, you know, ISIL or anything, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) am I doing something that I can't do? So what type of permissions does the church give and freedoms to, to do such a thing where maybe we know the text and we don't have maybe necessarily the music for it yet, um, are, do, do we have the ability to do that like they did? I mean, what, what do they have to get permission? Yeah,
1: you know, so that that is a um, that's a big issue, I think. Obviously, and and right now, when it deals to copyright, actually, um, when I was a student at the Institute, Adam Bartlett and I had a conversation about copyrights when I was working on my book, um, the Vesperal for Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans, and um, so. You know, when you, when you think about the Latin melodies, for instance, so the Latin melodies are a public domain. Um, maybe the, the the actual image on the paper could be copyrighted by Salim, but the melodies themselves, you could reproduce their own by the church, and, and there's no issue with that. Um, but when it comes to the English text, you know, obviously, so in the United States, right, to the, so the scriptural text and the breveries, the New American Bible, which is copyrighted, and the, the Grail Psalter, which is copyrighted, and um, all, all of that is, has a copyright. To it, um, so I would say that since musical forms don't exist right now in like an official form, there's never been like a promulgated English antiphonale. Um, you could easily set the the music to, I mean, the text to music without worrying about copyright. But as far as publishing it, you would have to have some sort of copyright issue, and, and you know. So I would say so in the United States, you know, I can think of. Of four monasteries that have already done their own book in the house, others that have parts of the book made, um, examples like my book at Notre Dame Seminary. So you have multiple places who essentially have, have done the same thing, but these resources are not available to each other because they were only printed in house to avoid copyright issues. So, um, you know, I do think that's something that. For instance, if if the um, you know if the English conferences wanted to have a, this available, um, they would need to be able to liken the copyright laws so that so you could be able to do this sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, or at least create some avenue that you could present these books to some board to review it to receive promulgation. Um, it's it's actually easier to publish a Catholic hymnal and receive permission um, <laughs> than it is to publish. And antipanolic
0: <laughs> one one could argue maybe that's why we have so many hymnals i don't know when you could posit that yeah. <laughs> my my last question here um it's just because you know we're, we're we're in here and we're kind of celebrating the release of these new things that we get to take part in what what is left to be done you know um and uh, is there concern that Is there concern when the new translation comes, does that throw things in a whack? Does it fulfill anything? Do we have to worry about or be concerned about any of that?
1: Yeah. So as far as the the Latin typical editions are concerned, um, what's left to be done are the ferial offices, so the weekday offices, um, and a good number of the memorials. So some of um, the feasts are available and the texts that are already already presented, um, but sort of the lesser you don't have music available for them yet. Um, and you also don't have, um, anything, anything officially published for, for weekdays. Now I do mention in the article, how there was a a private group in France that sort of published their own book, which fulfills all of that. And you can purchase that, but it, but it doesn't, it's not like an official text, so Mm -hmm. to say, whereas the antiphonale Romanum is, you know, it, it doesn't have an imprimatur, right. It has a decree published by the, by the, by the authority of the church. Um, so as far as Latin goes, we're getting closer, but there's there's still distance that need to be done. Um,
0: and then that and, would then need the English, to be translated into the multiple well, languages. Yeah, it, it
1: would it would need to be. Yeah. So as far as like the English world goes, um, so of course I'm I'm not involved in any of these conversations, but I know that um, we're we're about to publish. I say we as a, an American Catholic, we're about to publish um, a hymnal for the office. Um, I think it should be coming out within the month or so. I mean, they'd said first quarter of 2022. Um, I, I know it's it's ready for print if it's not already printed. Um, so that will contain for the first time ever in any English text, uh, an official edition of all of the chant hymns for the breviary. And my understanding is they're going to be published with the authentic Gregorian melodies as well as with a um, alternative metrical tune with the same text. Um, so essentially, you know, seminary I think leaves a great example that chance that does the office every day right um, you will now for the first time ever in in the history of the english-speaking world have access to a book that has all of the hymns for the bravery. um so that's a wonderful accomplishment and um, the bishops were insistent on, on publishing this before the new translation even though it's it's basically text from the new translation so that people can go ahead and familiarize themselves with it um, now once the breviary itself is translated you know there's it's basically going to be where we're at, you know, the, what's the, we're, we're going to be at start again. Um, mm-hmm. You think about projects like the Mundelein Psalter, obviously will have to be redone or, or. Yeah.
0: We're having conversations about that now, actually. Yeah.
1: yeah. I had actually, I talked to Kevin Thurton about that at one point and, and then um, like my best role at Notre Dame, I've already begun doing a little bit of prep work because even though I'm not a seminarian, obviously there anymore, they've been using this book for six years now and um and it's part of their sort of liturgical ethos and that's something that i would like to see to continue so i want to make sure to be able to provide Mm -hmm. them a resource um but it's difficult when these texts are not necessarily available so you know any work that I've been able to do, it's because someone has, you know, slipped me something under the desk and I can <laughs> <laughs> work with
0: it. You know? <laughs> right. Uh, I, kn- I know I said that uh, that was my last question, but when you had mentioned feral days, it made me think of this other issue that I, that I know comes up a lot, especially since we published the underline Psalter and maybe we have new saints like John Paul II and John the Twenty Third who weren't saints. And sometimes even when you have, uh, you know, some type of uh, hymnal or antiphon book, you're just like, well, we'll use common of pastors, you know, <laughs> you know, holy women. Yeah. So when those come out, um, how, how do we deal with that? How do we get those new things? Do we just have to, do they, do they do a bulk at a time say, it's been 10 years, we have, you know, 25 new saints, let's, let's add them or do, or, you know, how does that work?
1: Yeah. This may sound insane, but this is how they do it is. um So when, when a typical edition is promulgated, right. So the breviary, you know, the, the most recent is is a two thousand I think um, two thousand one. When a typical edition is promulgated, any saints that are canonized afterwards are not actually inserted into the typical edition. They're just put into a supplement. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you when you buy your English breviary, you know you're going to get a little paper supplement, and that's meant to be a, a replication of what exists in the Latin. And those texts will not actually be inserted into the new breviary until the next typical edition is published. So the American, um, you know, community committee that's working together on the new breviary, um, if they want to include these new feasts in the breviary itself, which would be ideal, right. Uh, technically they have to get permission for that because they would be altering altering the typical edition, um, rather than just publishing a supplement. Um, And Like I said, it seems overly complicated, but I think that's meant to make sure that all the books are being consistent across Mm -hmm.
0: the board. And I'm sure Um, there's a threshold, like it may may be published in a year and it's like, well, we had to get these all approved. So we can't include John Paul II or whatever, because just the timing wise, you know.
1: Yeah. And and part of the issue with all of that as well is when whenever a new feast is promulgated, um, usually, you know, the same day they'll publish the Latin edition of those liturgical texts but you can't just translate those yourselves and put them in the breviary, right? Did there, you know, so I'll give the example of the preface of St. Mary Magdalene, right? So Pope Francis raised Mary Magdalene to a feast a few years ago and he he had a preface for her. Um, and I was excited to use that preface, but it took two years for us to get an official English translation of the preface. (laughs) I kept telling myself, isn't there someone at ISIL who can do this? Um, but so for, for two years, you, you couldn't do it in English. You, if you were going to use her preface, you had to use the Latin because it was all what was available um, in, in the ordinary form. Um, so I think that's also part of an example of, I think this process exists to make sure the texts are safe and, and are, are translated well. Um, but it, it does sort of give us a sort of bulky problem mm-hmm. when it comes to inserting a new
0: beast. Mm-hmm. That's the theme of this whole conversation with all this text is, there's that there's that middle ground of you know preserving and having a system for something and protecting something, but then allowing you know the promulgation of something so that good stuff can be done and so that that is a mm-hmm. tough line to 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 hoe and I think it's it's important that we do it right and so I think that's why the church is so intentional about this so it can be frustrating, but then also it can be a huge relief so that you know you know nothing's overly vulnerable in terms of you know, taking stuff and, and getting super wonky with it. So uh, yeah, excellent. Well, well, father, thank you so much for this, this wonderful articulate article. And uh, we look forward to all these new things that are happening, especially with the liturgy of the hours. And, uh, and I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the in- intent, by the way, <laughs> even though Helen uh, Hillen, Hillenbrand uh, uh, books, the imprint has gone away. There is an the intent to to update the Mundelein Psalter once the new text comes out. So anybody who's been asking, that's that's the process. We will be doing that. We will update the Mundelein Psalter. But um but Aaron, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jesse.
0: Thank you.